0: So when 9-11 happened and George Bush came on national television and said, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists, because I felt like I didn't belong to my society, because I felt like my society had rejected me. I had sympathy uh, with Osama bin Laden's attacks um, and quickly uh, jumped into trying to absorb the ideology that was promoted by al Qaeda uh, and soon went on to become a radical preacher on the streets of New York. Um, advocating for al-Qaeda's views.
1: Today on the podcast, I've got one of the smartest and most interesting people I've ever met in the form of Jesse Morton, a former jihadist who now counters violent extremism with his organisation Parallel Networks. Jesse has done some pretty terrible things. He was a far-left extremist who became the most prominent white American jihadist and a recruiter for al-Qaeda. He was also responsible for threatening the South Park creators and forcing them at the last minute to censor the image of the prophet. I was going to put this out earlier but thought it was a perfect follow up to last week's episode with David Robson on the intelligence trap because Jesse is an example of how an incredibly clever person can make huge and potentially fatal mistakes. Of course, we are all in part the sum of our experiences, and Jesse was abused by his mother as a child. He talks about how a history of childhood trauma combined with a victim mentality can be a dangerous thing. He later spent time in prison and was in solitary confinement for a year while reading up in the library on all sorts of fundamentalist material that strengthened his convictions. He really has such a long and rich story, so at times I just wanted to sit back and listen, occasionally steering the conversation this way or that. He's quite an intense and cerebral man and talks with absolute honesty about what he did and why he did it, as if he feels a compulsion to share what he did through either guilt or shame, and he talks about the difference between the two. He also takes us into the life of a street preacher whose bomb designs were used by terrorists at the Boston Marathon. It may suit our ideology of good and bad to think of terrorists as either stupid or morally bankrupt, but Jesse talks about the far more nuanced and intricate traits that are at play. Those who are highly intelligent but very unsuccessful, he says, often try to tear down the world as it is and rebuild it to suit their talents or purposes. A world where everybody recognises their greatness. At one point, Jesse was arrested and pled guilty in a US court before agreeing to work with the FBI. His work focuses on getting inside the minds of the top extremists and denouncing violence to them. To understand everything about Jesse, we'll start with his early life and family before moving on to his beliefs and his work. Find Jesse on Twitter. His personal account is at underscore Jesse Morton and he talks more about his work on at... Light upon light. Meet me in my free chat room. You shouldn't have to sign up or anything like that at 8 pm on Thursday to discuss the whole thing. And by the way, it was my birthday. I turned 32 on March the 21st. Which, if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, uh you heard it the day after. Uh so until the end of March, I'm offering a 10% discount on patreoncom andrewgold andrew gold where you can get bonus content and early and ads free episodes. So the £3 a month deal will now be just £2.70 until the end of March. You can leave more if you want, or you can cancel whenever you want as well. Uh, Or you can just send me a message on Twitter or Instagram to say happy birthday, because I'll love that, even if it is a couple of days late. Uh, But anyway, here is Jesse. Jesse, is that how you say your name, Jesse? Jesse, yes. I like Breaking Bad yeah you you seen that
0: (laughs) yeah I have yes I know of it I saw a couple episodes not that familiar but yes I know the the the, the character's name is Jesse
1: yeah I love I love that show so go on let's get into your story then thank you for giving me your time where whereabouts are you from and and, and everything
0: well I was born in Pennsylvania in a very rural town but I didn't exactly have a rural roots my father was a Uh, an affluent uh, suburban Jersey kid from New Jersey here in the United States, the son of a very prominent attorney. Uh, My roots go all the way back to Samuel Adams, one of the founding fathers of the United States. He's a direct descendant. My ancestors came over on the Mayflower. Uh, I have a co-signer of the Declaration of Independence, John Morton, that's a direct uh, ancestor. And we are what they call here in the United States, uh, a family of the sons and daughters of the American Revolution. So by all accounts, I should have been an all-American boy. But in the senior year of my father's high school, his father, uh, due to smoking, uh, passed away out of nowhere in lung cancer. Uh, And he had a sort of uh, a moment of uh, in the midst of a context that was the countercultural movement of the 60s, um, decided that he wanted to be a beatnik hippie. Uh, And not follow in the tradition of his father, he still went on to participate in a liberal arts college in rural Pennsylvania that a lot of kids from New Jersey go to to study pre pre law, but it's in a very small town in Pennsylvania called Sealand's Grove, Pennsylvania, the university is called Susquehanna University. And it was there that my father um, developed an affinity for Pennsylvania construction and woodworking. He was living on a farmhouse, living like a hippie going to college, met my mother who has very closed rural working class roots. She was working at a pantry or a diner as a waitress. They met each other and uh, I was conceived. Uh, And in those days, uh, when you uh, impregnated a woman, you typically uh, married. And they got married uh, as a result of me being born. Now, my father continued during the period of time when he was doing his undergraduate work at the university to trek further into a far leftist countercultural critique Uh, that largely influenced my upbringing. So I grew up on a commune in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania, where uh, dad grew uh, organic vegetables in the garden and also marijuana in the woodshed. So provided for himself by selling marijuana had hippies coming and going the first couple years of life. And then the reality of life set in my father had to become a construction worker. Uh, He was largely financially unsuccessful Uh, started to commit adultery against my mother and my mother, had very, very, very closed roots. And so she loved my father severely because he represented getting outside and beyond her rural upbringing. But when he betrayed her and started to cheat on her, it activated inside of her some of, uh, I think, predisposition to mental health ailment and rage. And she certainly suffered from what appears to be a personality disorder and some what manifested as bipolar. She started to beat her children. And because we grew up in the middle of nowhere, No one could hear the screams and the cries of us being bitten, of us being choked, of us being punched, of our hair being pulled out of our heads. Um, And so I grew up in a space where um, I was completely unprotected and where my mother took out the rage she had against my father uh, on her children. Now, abusers and in dysfunctional families, there's usually a person who's isolated as a scapegoat, a person who's portrayed as a bad child that justifies the abuse that's being dished out by the abuser. And I had a younger sister who my mother would also abuse. And I developed this conception of myself as someone who was willing to sacrifice my own well-being for the sake of others in the household. Uh, And then my younger brother was not abused by my mother because this is typical behavior of abusers. I didn't know this then, of course. Um, So basically, the personality that made me susceptible to becoming who I became, ultimately a radicalized jihadist, um, was formulated in that early dysfunction, uh, familial dysfunction. And so when I would go to to school, uh, I had this uh, issue where my father was from an affluent background. I had a very high IQ. They tested my IQ and they sent me to go to different school than the rural elementary school I was supposed to go to. And I started to go to school with more affluent kids. So my mother's side represented this rural underprivileged working class Caucasian roots. My father had a more affluent background, so I was always different, I guess you could say, than most of the people that I was associating with. And I felt like the people that were more affluent were unable to recognize the signs and the indicators that I was being abused. I would go to school counselors after family members like my grandmother uh, refused to intervene and stop the abuse. And I felt betrayed by my society. So long story short, at the age of 15, I ran away from home And basically, because of the far leftist sort of Bob Dylan, Grateful Dead, Jack Kerouac on the bookshelf, my father had left the hippie movement, but left behind a lot of the ideology on the shelves, and I turned towards it to get refuge. So at the age of 15, when I ran away, uh, I was already a sort of counterculturalist that rejected American materialism and consumerism, felt like the United States was an evil power in the world, if you will, um, and had a lot of resentment against my society. So I ran away at the age of 15 in 1995, uh, seven years before 9 11. And that's where my process of radicalization, first into the far left and ultimately joining a countercultural movement called the Grateful Dead. Uh, began and was seated, and that would carry over into my jihadist radicalization.
1: It must have been very hard for you to grow up like that, just confused and, and not listened to all the time.
0: What it does to you is it makes you an old soul too soon. So in so many ways, you're just a little child who doesn't have the coping skills to deal with the abuse. But because your mind has to make sense of it all, you learn how to think very com- with a lot of complexity because you have to understand that to your mother, she's beating you. You can't really hate your mother because there's a natural drive to love her. So you actually adopt the self-fulfilling prophecy that you're a bad kid and you try to make excuses for your perpetrator and for your aggressor and for your oppressor. But I reacted in a way where I stood up to her and absorbed the abuse as a consequence. So it made me root for the underdog. uh, And it made me have a personality that was really not able to care for myself. So I understood a lot of things outside of myself as a means of numbing the pain, and having to look inside of myself to cope. Um, And that is the essence of being addicted to an extremist ideology that I ultimately came uh, into contact with. So I like to think and say that I was basically drifting um, with a lot of need for belonging and awareness and, and camaraderie and community that I never had, um, but was drifting in a manner where I would have latched on to anything that came my way.
1: Some of the views you started to hold, I mean, some of it sounds similar to how you described your father as well. I mean, you said he was very left wing. Did he was he also sort of prone to very extremist ideas?
0: Yes. I mean, my father was someone who rejected everything about even at one point when he was young, before I could remember um, my grandmother. His mother tells me that he even considered it forbidden to cut the grass um, because he felt like it was interfering with nature. So he was ultimately this uber environmentalist, very critical of everything that had to do with mainstream sort of culture, but to the degree of absurdity. Um, and um, I think that that left a, a a resonant impact because I ran away at 15. I took to the streets of New York city. I interacted with the sort of street culture that was very negative, very oppressive, rarely satisfied my need to be abused. And then in, Uh, New York City, the Grateful Dead, which is a phenomenon in America that goes all the way back to the roots of 1960s counterculture. These are the people that took rock and roll and combined it uh, with LSD, electric Kool-Aid acid tests. So the idea was to explore consciousness through the the use of hallucinogenics. And then they created over a 30 year period of time. A way where people would literally travel with the band, sell drugs, sell food, sell hippie products, and you didn't have to be involved in mainstream American society. So I was completely off the grid. I lived in concert parking lots, traveled all around throughout the year, saw the entire country, but would hustle drugs on the parking lot, selling LSD, mushrooms, marijuana to concert goers, giving me that feeling of empowerment learning how to become what I later became a radicalizer and a recruiter as a drug dealer. Now, at the age of 19, uh, I was uh, interestingly arrested, went to jail for about 60 days, and I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. And so before I knew anything about Islam, I understood Malcolm X's story. And it resonated with me because he was traumatized, discriminated against engaged in criminal behavior went to prison changed his life became a social justice warrior and then at the end of the book goes to mecca against the advice of his black nationalist extremist preacher and sees white people circumambulating the Kaaba in saudi arabia so he eradicates his own racism and enters the traditional sunni islamic fold and that motivated me to seek before 9-11 an identity that might allow religion to give me the same stability. Like Malcolm left prison, didn't use drugs, didn't use alcohol, totally engaged in a moral sort of way of behavior. And as much as he was an extremist on the negative side, he became an extremist on the positive side. That left an imprint on my soul I wanted to emulate. And so when I left that 60 days of initial incarceration, I started to explore religion and spirituality, I started to read Buddhism, Jehovah's Witness, Christianity, end of times prophecy, uh, Islam. And uh, I didn't convert, I continued to engage in negative behavior. But one day I was in Philadelphia, and there was a fundamentalist Muslim who was a bad drug dealer on the side. Uh, And we got caught up in a scandal, I guess you could say, where we were almost arrested. Uh, we did not get arrested. And in the course of hiding out from the police, he turns to me and he says, repeat these words after me and everything will be OK. I had never heard them. It was Arabic. But it means and translates to I bear witness that there's only one God and that Muhammad is his prophet. This is the Shahada, the testimony of faith. And because we got away and I didn't get arrested, I felt like this was a sort of divine intervention. So we jump in a cab after we get away from the police and he says, I'm going to take you to my wife's house. Uh, And all you have to do to get inside is say you converted to Islam and she'll welcome you with open arms. And she does. She cooks for me. I go to sleep. I really felt like there was a sense of safety in that moment. I go to sleep on the couch. I wake up in the middle of the night or actually early in the morning and I'm going to use the bathroom. And here is the Quran sitting open on the bookshelf. And I pick it up and the first verse that I read says, This is a book wherein there's no doubt, a guidance for people of consciousness. Now, I had spent my life trying to establish an awareness that was deeper than what I thought consumerist and materialist societies in the West were built upon. Um, And uh, it really appealed to me. I had a moment where I was overcome by emotion. And when Shakur, the individual that I was staying at his house, woke up, uh, came to me, I said, I want to convert to Islam. He took me to a mosque, gave me a conversion at the feet of a fundamentalist mosque uh, based out of Saudi Arabia that's located in the ghetto of Philadelphia, but I couldn't stay there. So in turn, I decided to survive. I needed to get on a Greyhound bus. I stowed away on a Greyhound bus. I made my way to Virginia, which is a different state here in the United States, about two hours away from, uh, from Philadelphia. Uh, and I went to a concert where I planned on selling false narcotics to concert goers in order to get enough money to get myself together. I had just converted to Islam, but uh, I needed to survive. And I was arrested for the distribution of false narcotics. So I found myself, my transformation, complete change and alteration, where I emulated Malcolm X the way I understood him, comes in Richmond City Jail in Virginia when a Afghan veteran, uh, an, a, a veteran of the Afghan Soviet Jihad, a Moroccan who had traveled. Uh, to fight alongside of Osama bin Laden, who was incarcerated in Richmond, Virginia jail, took me and taught me the basics of Islam, the prayer, the fasting, the giving of charity, the idea of going to Hajj like Malcolm went, did. And he gave me a new identity, he gave me a new name, Yunus Abdullah Muhammad, and then at one point started to activate a political understanding telling me that there was the implementation of God's law of Sharia that was currently going on in Afghanistan and that the United States and the West would never allow it to succeed because it represented a challenge to liberalism and that I would soon see a war between the East and the West or the Muslims and the non-Muslims that would be marked because a hadith of prophecy, a narration in the Islamic text of prophecy, that said that black flags of jihad will be raised in Afghanistan and they will not be stopped until they reach Jerusalem would come to fruition. Now that appealed to me because as a far leftist, I was reading Noam Chomsky, Norman Finkelstein, other sort of critical theorists that were critiquing the Israeli state. So Mm -hmm. here I found my far leftist political views compatible with a spiritual tradition and religion. And it really opened me up. So when 9-11 happened, And George Bush came on national television and said, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists because I felt like I didn't belong to my society because I felt like my society had rejected me. I, contrary to the reactions of most people, had sympathy uh, with Osama bin Laden's attacks um, and quickly uh, jumped into trying to absorb the ideology that was promoted by Al Qaeda uh, and soon went on to become a radical preacher on the streets of New York. I'm um, advocating for Al-Qaeda's views.
1: Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts, and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What could go right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva Lucas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that private. What's changed? to your happy place
0: for a happy price go to your happy price
1: price line how does one you'd become a born-again uh, muslim and then you were selling drugs for example so that's something that's presumably banned by uh islam and so w- was there a lot of uh, cognitive dissonance going on in your mind how does one reconcile in that moment these leftist views which are supposed to be about helping the underdog with sort of murder and, and things like that? Do you push it to the back of your mind when, you, when you're defending 9-11, for example?
0: Yeah, so the cognitive dissonance immediately eradicated with regard to the behavior, because when I left the Richmond City Jail uh, situation, uh, because of the indoctrination of the charismatic preacher, I completely dropped everything. I did, I, for 14 years, I did not take a sip of alcohol from that point on. And now when 9-11 happened, their religious justification, their political justification for terrorism as the only means of the weak to stand up for themselves. It made sense that all of the grievance that blaming the United States as an imperialist power, blaming its foreign policy for giving carte blanche legitimacy to Arab authoritarian dictatorships to uh, attack their own people, uh, sometimes attacking civilians, you would hear a lot about how the United States funds Israel and Israel in turn kills Palestinians or that the sanctions in Iraq that preceded 9-11 killed hundreds of thousands of Iraqi mm. youth. This is the eye for the eye mentality that fundamentalism differs from far leftism in. But the political right. grievance is the same, so it creates an ability to be open, a cognitive opening to the to the grievance
1: I suppose the deaths are sort of considered a necessary evil in that moment
0: that's the way they're framed yeah.
1: I'd, I'd love to know um, what what's in- interesting actually is that many of us see street preachers, for example, we almost see them as a total other being we other them um, we try we pro- a lot of us cross the street you know we try we just think oh god I don't want to get involved in that. take me into the mind or as you were, of a street preacher?
0: Yeah, so we were uh, the first organization in the West that really understood the importance of connecting the offline street preaching to online dissemination of propaganda. So one of the innovations of my organization was to go to preach on the street like Adama Hajirun did in the UK. We stole their template, worked alongside of them. I was good friends with Anjum Chaudhry Omar Bakri Muhammad and the types of people that you're talking about. But we did it a little bit differently. Um, One of the things about knowing that the majority of people will be turned off by your views is that you also know that a very low base rate of the population will sympathize and empathize with them. And that one of the objectives of street preaching is to split the world into blacks and whites. So when they see you as an idiot or when they see you as a non-human, it actually aids your ability to make the argument that they are engaged in a war against Islam. When in fact, they're just put off by an interpretation of Islam that is extremist Mm. and is hideous. Uh, You can frame that in a skillful, tactful manner. And then if you're catching everything on video, something that ISIS became very good at, but that we were the first to do and uploading it to YouTube, Right. The conversations that you have with those that disagree with you that might not be informed as to why you believe you can catch conversations where you're saying, This is our grievance. This is our grievance. This is our grievance. So we're justified. You're armed with all of the information to inundate them. They haven't necessarily thought about it as much as you because your whole world revolves around it. And when you catch that on film to your adherents, it says, oh, these people are totally ignorant. But in fact, they were just unprepared and they became useful idiots in a propaganda piece. Right. And so we would do that in the Muslim community and in the street. And that's why, you know, I think that public awareness about radicalization, what we've learned over the years is that it's really important to have the general public aware of the, um uh, the mechanisms, the goals, the objectives, the techniques and the tactics of charismatic preachers, um, mm. particularly in the era when it was uh, possible to do it on the street. Now, uh, street preaching is much more difficult, particularly in countries like the United Kingdom. But this same uh, sort of approach and techniques and tactics are being utilized online every day.
1: Oh, this, it's the exact reason that I don't have... Uh, extremists of any of any sort of uh, ideology on the podcast because I'm not prepared enough. No matter how much I do, how much research I do in advance, they are going to. So a flat earther, for example, I would consider an extremist with probably ill informed views. But if that's his entire life being a flat earther, I'm sure he could walk the floor with me. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. Yeah. God. It's so that's difficult. the
0: that's the importance. And a lot of people that portray themselves as experts in countering extremism and ideologies actually don't realize that these people have spent years of their life oftentimes cementing an understanding of the worldview that they believe in. And Mm -hmm. so if we paint pictures that are untrue and unnuanced, we can actually do extremist favors by doing so. Mm -hmm. So it's a good policy that you have not to do that because it's true. It takes a sense of humility uh, to a degree to adopt that position. But many times people will find themselves, whether they're journalists or academics, Uh, engaging with these people thinking that they're ignorant and being overcome and overwhelmed by the amount of uh, coherency uh, that the worldview they hold, as absurd as it might be, if you were able to take a pause in between sort of stimulus and response and unpack it, um, they live it and breathe it every day. And so when given an opportunity to platform it, they can yeah. really, really dissect any obstacles that are put in their, in their way that would be of rudimentary nature. Because like us, when the moderate imams used to come to us and argue with us, it was our favorite thing in the world, mm-hmm. right? Because we already knew what they were going to say and already were armed with the defense against it. And when the people that we were recruiting would see us able to hold our own against people that were considered experts or moderate imams with certified legitimacy as an authoritative figure, it gave us legitimacy and authority. And so this is something that um, is a good policy for you to have, but on the wide scale is not necessarily paid close attention to in the field of research or of entertainment or of journalism at large.
1: So you're a very intelligent person. You had a high, very high IQ, you mentioned, when you were younger. I happen to be reading a book right now of some somebody wrote who's coming on the podcast next week called The Intelligence Trap. And it's about how often the, the world's smartest people can make bigger mistakes because of their intelligence, because... I guess you can get into a a sort of reasoning like you're talking about, like how a flat earther might be able to convince himself of something and use very intelligent arguments. Do you see that in yourself? Is that part of what happened?
0: I think that a lot of the charismatic preachers that I've met, and I work now with far right wing extremists as well, and I concentrate on concentrating on removing the hubs. So I don't work with the low level people. I work with the high end ideologues because of my background. Um, I think that it's a combination of intelligence that is unrecognized because of the complexities of chance associated with life, that they are not successful and that these are people who know they're intelligent, but are not attaining success. And so for them, the idea is if I just tear down the world the way that it is, then I can rebuild a world where everybody recognizes my greatness. Because one thing about intelligence is it can be a gift and it can be a curse, uh, in the sense that, um, Uh, intelligence is real, but usually people that are of high intelligence end up getting professional gains that lead to financial uh, success, that lead to people looking up to them, taking information from them. But for extremists, they might have this characteristic and this trait, and intelligence is probably very much key to their interest in absorbing everything about the ideology and putting the time in to become a preacher because they want to be heard. But for them, the uh, objective is to recognize that society is not realizing my greatness and to try to mold society as idealists in a manner that will allow them to feed their own
1: narcissistic needs. Do you have to be careful then every time you have, if you have a new thought, knowing where your mind is able to take you? Do you have to sort of have a security system in there to go, wait, hang on, that's, I might be doing this. Yes.
0: So for so for me I have to connect the intelligence and the ability to process information and to think with complexities and multidimensionally uh that should be a gift but what I realized over time was because of the trauma the child abuse the instability the insignificance the lack of meaning and purpose and significance I operated from a neuroscientific space of what we might call fight flight or freeze and a person who's operating and in neuroscience we now know that the brain that is in a traumatic state processes information in the amygdala, which is the emotional part of the brain, and that the rational decision making components of the brain occur in the prefrontal cortex. Now, what we know about absorbing messages and why extremist messages are resonant is because they don't appeal to the rationalism of the human being. They appeal to the spiritual, the emotional self. And for a person who's stuck in fight, flight or freeze and traumatized, they are going to want to look at the world through a black and a light white lens. They're going to want to have an objective truth rather than a world of complexities that's very difficult to arrive at a truth. And that's part of the narcissism and the intoxication of being fascinated by one's own intelligence, but not having society recognize that. So black and white worldviews appeal to uh, those that are operating out of the amygdala or in fight, flight, or freeze because it makes the world very us versus them. And then that appeals to you because that is you saying, society did not recognize me as an individual, but the reason they didn't is because they discriminate against me and my people. And so my people becomes defined as the group and you in turn find a cause that cements your identity with the group and then you become an advocate defending the group and you feel like a Robin Hood type figure.
1: The hero of your own story.
0: Yes. It, and, and and so, yes. So in de-radicalization, you need to, for intelligent people, get into conversations that include neuroscience, ideology, cognitive biases, heuristics and biases. And they can and, and, and that's a fundamental misunderstanding about de-radicalization work is there's this assumption that people are just simpletons. That are extremists, that if they just get critical thinking skills, we always hear people say, extremists lack an ability to think critically. I can tell you that's bullshit Uh, at the level of uh, ideologue and charismatic preacher. The reason that they got into the movement in the first place was because they were able to think critically, but didn't necessarily realize that true critical thinking will lead you to conclude that the world is full of a lot more randomness and complexities and that there's serious limitations on knowledge that mean that when you assume a position that I am right in this matter, it can really much be one of arrogance and authoritarianism It's certainly not one that's compatible with a proper understanding of democracy and liberalism uh, and freedom of the individual. But I don't think that that is just a mistake that's being made by far right wing extremists or jihadists. I think that generally our society has gone to a level of narcissism that needs to be need that needs to have intelligence recognized and needs fulfilled and that it is creating uh, a certain uh, unwillingness. To look at other points of view and cancel culture and other byproducts of even far left wing extremism yeah. feed into that. And I, would, I, and, and, and I would argue that that is one of the fundamental problems that we have is assuming that we're right and assuming that the extremists are wrong is exa- about everything is exactly the problem because mm-hmm. we're actually seeing extremists in the same way they f- see us and feeding into it. Um, so I think the whole world needs critical thinking skills and ability to process with complexity better.
1: So I read, I read a scientific paper just a week ago, actually, um, a, that found that among virtue signalers and cancel culture um, advocates, there was a higher percentage of narcissists and sociopaths. Of course. Yeah, it doesn't surprise you.
0: Not at all. Not at all, because, of course, if you're imparting your worldview and you're assuming that your worldview is correct, which is what we see happening across the board. And that's why the unwillingness to talk about far left wing extremism is very problematic because it's part of a reciprocal radicalization process between both sides. And what you see if you really get to dive into these movements is an incredible amount of narcissism, particularly from amongst their ideologues. But in some ways, one could argue that they have been given a carte blanche sort of sympathy by the powers that be because they align themselves very, uh, they're very much in line with being able to do the work of Delegitimizing the other side, sort of the conservative side of things. And that's what we see happening in the United States. You can't talk about Antifa's violence. You can't talk about their narcissism. You can't talk about their unwillingness to understand the world with complexity, with compassion. And it is driven by narcissism. But it, because it's an ally, because everything is boiled down to fascism and white supremacy, and everybody on the right wearing a MAGA hat is considered to be one step away from becoming a neo fascist it does the bidding and it serves the interests of that side. And to criticize it gets you cancel cultured. So this swarm of the horde has really had a chilling effect on an ability to have a democratic society that agrees that you can feel a certain way, but we should be able to discuss and through dialogue, minimize the belief that only violence can be a recourse to the grievance that has diminished. And it's largely a consequence of what you're talking about, because we're unwilling to recognize that that same characteristic I'm talking about, the narcissism, the personality disorders that drive those most invigorated by an ideology, right, is feeding the problem. But we're unwilling to look at that on the other side, because we think in a hyperpolarized situation that those that are with us are with us and those that are against us are against us. And so we see the world in us versus them, no matter how we look at things. And when we think about objectively weighing a definition of violent extremism or a definition of radicalization, we should have a definition that we apply across the board. But you'll see people with come up a whole entire book, for example, was written on extremism and how we need to define it. And then a definition of extremism that splits us in group, group, out group up, sees the world through black and white way, uh, justifies violence as preemptive. Uh, And has different characteristics when the person that wrote the book and concluded because he's on the left, you know, was asked, does this apply to the far left? He refuses to apply that definition objectively (laughs) because he knows that the pushback could cost him the legitimacy in his field and because he does not want to uh, go against the grain, so to say. So we Mm -hmm. don't have any objectivism in the way that we are looking at this problem. And that's fundamentally going to make the problem worse.
1: So we've talked about politics. Um, I want to get into trauma because as you say, trauma was a big part of what made you become so extreme. The way that you speak, if you don't mind me saying, you're very intellectual, you intellectualize and you've talked about some quite extreme things. Is that part of the 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 frozen part? You said uh, uh, fight or flight or freeze. Do you feel frozen? Do you feel sad thinking back to those, those moments with, with your parents?
0: So... For a long time, I suffered from what you would call in the realm of psychology, toxic shame, right? Toxic shame, shame is different than guilt. Shame is punishing yourself for what you once were and blaming yourself for what you became. And there's no way to mobilize an ability to heal when you're stuck in that trap. Guilt is feeling bad for what you were and what you became, but recognizing the complexities and being merciful to yourself and then being able to mobilize that in a way where what we're learning about trauma, we differentiate between post-traumatic stress disorder and post-traumatic growth. People react to trauma all the time and it makes them empowered and it makes them more peaceful. It's recognizing what it is that allows that to happen. And in the literature, we realize that it's about the social connections that they have. They, uh, in turn, rather, they might be getting abused in the household, but they find a group or a community that welcomes them and accepts them and nurtures them so they can process the trauma positively, and it makes them stronger. It does not make them weak. Now, when we talk about trauma and its role in radicalization, we have a new threshold of understanding when we look at what we're learning about trauma writ large. So a lot of research over the past 25 years has shown that, for example, there was a study that started um, in the United States of Kaiser Permanente insurance getters. It's called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. Um, And they found that um, people had appalling rates of adverse childhood experiences, like child abuse, sexual molestation, um, uh, being uh, spoken to derogatorily by parents. And they started to categorize people as having four or more adverse childhood experiences being correlated to all kinds of things. So over the last 30 years, susceptibility to mental health disorders, criminal behavior, addiction all kinds of negative adverse outcomes has been correlated to those that suffer from adverse childhood experiences. So child experience is ultimately crucial to formulating um, a susceptibility to all kinds of negative outcomes. Now, we only recently started to study this with regard to radicalization and violent extremism, but I'll give you one stat that kind of hints at this phenomenon and its uh, and, 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 and its sort of um, applicability to the field of counter-radicalization work, uh, scholars at uh, the University of Maryland studied far right-wing extremists and found that 65% of them had experienced four or more adverse childhood experiences uh, in before the age of 18. Now, if you look at juvenile delinquent populations, those that were incarcerated for crimes as youth, they suffer from four or more adverse childhood experiences at 55% of the time, but the general base population is 16% suffer from four or more adverse childhood experiences. So there's a a, a correlation there. And really, we are learning so much more about the role that social connectivity and feeling like one belongs to society um, and that one has an ability to connect to groups, um, Mm -hmm. how important that is, because as one scholar has put in radicalization studies, it's about the group, not about God, meaning that people, it's not the theological ideology alone, it's the fact that when you start to adhere to these ideologies, you start to meet people that love you and that give you family and that give you camaraderie. And usually people that have entered extremist movements have never experienced that before. That was my mm. case.
1: How do you actually feel, you personally, I mean, uh, about your past? Do you, th- do you have flashbacks to it? And-
0: I do. I, 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 I still have uh, problems with the child abuse. I still have to heal from the root of the trauma. Um, and I still have to heal from what I once did. I have done so much work with regard to therapy. I have done a lot of work with regard to digging into alternative perspectives and self-learning in the realm of trauma. I have established a healthy uh, module for prayer, understand interoceptive bias, which is like a judge will sentence an individual differently based upon whether or not he's had breakfast. Or not, you know, and understanding that I need to take care of my body, I need to feed myself properly, I need to exercise properly, that my thinking is connected to how much I care for my body. It makes me feel not like I'm making amends, because I'll never be able to repair the damage for what I did. But it makes me feel like I'm healing. Now I have, you know, 30 years of trauma to deal with and getting stability and getting to a place where you can deal with that is and 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 have the stability to actually face that takes time it's a process it's not an event so i'm not going to sit here and bullshit you and tell you that i'm 100% healed i will say that when those flashbacks come when the feeling of remorse comes i have the tools to deal with it where it's not toxic and it hmm. is something that i can sit with process breathe through stay in the moment and count the good things I'm doing now when I want to beat myself up inside for how much of a loser I actually am
1: I don't think you're a loser
0: well that's how you can feel in certain moments is what I'm saying yeah, yeah you, you you look at other people that are your age and you realize you threw away 10 years of your life to be involved yeah. in a movement that you know and then it took 10 years just to get back on track after that and you feel like you know, I'm, I'm, I'm. I, I, was a horrible person, and you can embody that and internalize that, which taps into the original traumas as well. Hmm.
1: But you do fantastic work, though, that also helps a lot of people. Do you feel like your direct, your actions have directly or indirectly caused a lot of suffering and, and deaths, even?
0: My organization was connected to fifteen different terrorist plots. Mo- many of the people that I radicalized, I de-radicalized. I began my process of de-radicalization in two thousand and eleven. Three weeks after Osama bin Laden was killed in Abbottabad, I was picked up in Casablanca and sent back to the United States to do do prison time. Um, In the course of my time in prison, a lot of my students became the biggest radicalizers and recruiters for ISIS. And they developed mechanisms to use the magazines that I created uh, to mobilize violence and to give recipes for bombs. And they advised and counseled people as they engaged in terrorist attacks. So I'll never know how much damage I actually did. The Boston Marathon bombers used a recipe uh, that was published in a magazine by Al-Qaeda that I created. Um, There's a lot of guilt. They would have found
1: another recipe, though, wouldn't they? And and they would have found other people. So I don't don't know if it's entirely fair for you to, you know.
0: You do have to uh, sort of, uh, put a, a, a degree of agency and responsibility on it. Now, that's the difference between when I first went public as America's first former jihadist, I had so much toxic shame, but I didn't even know the difference between toxic shame and guilt. So these are things that I've learned by doing, you know, that, okay. So like when they would um, ask me questions about why we should trust you and um, comment on how much of a, a an evil person I was when I first started speaking, it would walk around with me for days. I yeah. would absorb that and I would, and, 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 and it would affect me. Now I uh, can honestly say that I have come to realize that I'll never be able to do anything about my past because you can't change the past. But what you can do is you can use the past and the mistakes that you made to learn from them and they can give you an ability to make amends and to repair some of that damage. And I guess because I'm still a believer, I'd like to think that hmm. if I live long enough, uh, I can do good work that's interesting, that fills uh, some of the interests that I have, but that also gives society a, a-, a benefit uh, yeah. that uh, might allow the negative uh, from the past to. Uh, be replaced uh, and compensated by what's the positive. So I use it as a motivation now, but that wasn't always the case.
1: How do you find people who are radicalized? And then how do you start? Because I wouldn't even know where to start. Where? Do, how do you start with like, okay, I'm going to de-radicalize you? Do you even let them know that you're doing it?
0: You can't because the minute that they would think that they were involved in a program uh, affiliated with the field I work in called countering violent extremism, it would be delegitimized because of the way that there's been mistakes in developing my field. So Mm. our differentiated approach is we understand the importance of holistic ecosystemic approaches. So what we use, we use counter narrative campaigns. So we use videos. We have two like online glossy e-zines that we issue articles, we disseminate information, but we're not like other organizations in the sense that we build our counter narrative products and expect extremists to come find us we also embed those products into the threads on social media and into all of what we do so that they know we exist. And because we do acknowledge extremism on all sides, and we don't, like most people in the industry that I work in, have a affiliation with the left, right, that pre- that that prevents anybody on the right from actually taking them seriously, we have an ability to talk about things objectively in a manner that allows them to Uh, Talk with us. So almost anybody that I reach out to that is an ideologue on the far right, for example, I have gotten a response from because they see that we do things differently. Now, my objective is not necessarily to de-radicalize because that's a cognitive process. My objective is to disengage from violence. Because if I can get you to denounce violence, then I can in turn make sure that there's no terrorism. But I have to be able to sit you in a place where you're not in fight, flight or freeze. And so the first thing that I do is I try to describe that I don't demonize you. And I try to make that real. And you can't do that with an mm. extremist if it's fake.
1: Just to interject, so this is, let's say pretend I'm one of these people, you're mm-hmm. messaging me on, on Facebook or in real life, what's going on?
0: Could be Telegram, could be Facebook, could be Parler, could be real life, could be an email, could be that you okay. have a website that you promote your views, could be a comment section on a YouTube chat with neo-Nazis.
1: And how have you found, you found me from those comments, those kinds of, that you found me on like a neo-Nazi thread or whatever, Yeah. and you've sent a message and you've said, you know, hi, I'm Jesse from Parallel Networks.
0: Well, yes, I say my name is Jesse Morton and I am a former jihadist. I see so much of my old self in you and this is what I do now. And I'd really love to talk to you just to get to know you because I find you fascinating. And it's it's the truth. Like I am sort of as a former charismatic preacher, I'm mesmerized by these new things and these people that become influencers in these communities. And I really do want to understand their worldview, not so that I can necessarily combat it, but so that I can better provide services and nuanced understandings of what their needs are. Um, And typically, if you're speaking to a person like that and you have the legitimacy and the credibility associated with having been them. Right, and particularly on another side of the fence, uh, they'll talk to you. Now they Mm -hmm. might talk to you in order to, to try to convince you, and that's fine because if you have the careful tact of understanding that everybody's an individual and being able to read them and get into their mind and understand their epistemological and their ontological underpinnings, then you can craftily develop a rapport that at one point, never challenging their beliefs, you don't even have to challenge their beliefs. Once they know you, you can say, okay, Let's stop right here in this moment and let's talk about how you got to be where you were. And once they start revealing their personal life, you can connect their personal experience to the ideology they uphold. Once they start talking about their ideology, you can get them to talk about their personal experience. So you can bridge a merger between Mm -hmm. an awareness in them that the ideology is something that they adopted, not just because it was an objective, accurate interpretation of the world, but it has so much to do with what we've experienced and who we are and how we define our personalities that they have an opening up that will allow them to consider a different point of view. But that takes time. Other people would challenge the beliefs right away And in turn, they would never get a response. What we do is we develop a rapport. We take the time because we don't work with people. We do work with people that call us or that contact us that are early into their enrollment in the movement. But our preference is for the people that are having influence. Because if you consider what we take a lot of science of network theory and like in networks, key nodes and hubs are responsible for the majority of the outputs. And if you extract the keynote or a hub mm. from a movement, networks are weakest at their hubs. So our objective is to shape shift the entire movement, first with a denunciation against violence um, and then with a process of de-radicalization that can impact the movement as a whole. And we've been yeah. very successful in our first three years of operations in working with most of the leaders of the far right that have been very prominent over the past few years. We've worked with them. Um, and we have no, no problem with letting them uh, be who they are. Uh, we still see them as human beings. And in turn, I think that's why our reputation in extremist movements is one of uh, respect. Now, when it comes to the far left, it, the designation is that we are platforming because for them, these people do not have a right to exist. They should be punched. They should be killed. They should be arrested. They should be eradicated preemptively. Uh, Because if not, then fascism will come back to the forefront of our society. We look at the actual data and say that it's still a fringe and that if Mm. you fight them like that and stigmatize them like that and silence them like that, you might actually be responsible for manifesting that problem and contributing to it coming to fruition. We think that we're not in a modality where they have any type of numbers where they represent an existential threat to our system on the far right. And therefore, it's much more important to mitigate that with dialogue and engagement uh, as opposed to silencing, cancelling, deplatforming. We think in the long term, all of these things simply make matters worse.
1: But what percentage would you say you're able to convert away from violence of the people you, you talk to these days?
0: Well, we have a holistic approach. So our objective is not just to do that, but we have... Worked with over 135 people in the past two years, most of which are in positions of cemented commitment, which is different than early entrance. At least 85 of those have been wholeheartedly successful. And we would say that there's been wow. gains of denouncing violence from amongst at least 20 more. So we're looking at success rates, I think. Uh, properly defined better than anyone in the countering violent extremism field has ever produced because of our approach. We're also looking at ability to communicate rates of engagement that are uh, unprecedented because of our approach, because it's holistic. But then also the great thing about our program is when somebody leaves through us, Mm. right, and they become de-radicalized, we provide avenues to work in the realm of prevention because we don't just do the intervention. So their story and their narrative, then we create such a, a good network in our country and around the world where they get to speak on panels and they get to speak at schools and they get to write articles. And those articles lead to more interventions, but they also lead to people not making the same mistakes.
1: Are you still in touch with your parents? Are they around?
0: I have to keep very distant contact, but I also do retain a connection because I have children and my children have a right to know their grandparents and to know their lineage. Um, and I would say that it's not healthy for me that much, but I have healed enough that I have the coping mechanism so that when I'm abused verbally now by my mother, for example, ah. it doesn't affect me. It doesn't trigger me in the same way that it used She's
1: to She's still abusive.
0: She will never change. She has a personality disorder. But coming to accept that and that she will not change is a big step in feeling uh, like you're not responsible or that um, uh, or, or that what she says about you is not true.
1: For I imagine a lot of listeners could probably take something from what you've what you've just said about their own parents. Yes, for sure. some acceptance can just can just do it sometimes. And you are still a practicing Muslim.
0: I am a practicing Muslim. I wouldn't call myself a fundamentalist in any way, shape or form. It was my contact with enlightenment text and coming around mm-hmm. to a different philosophical understanding that allowed me to look at the epistemology of Islam and the ontology of Islam. And I now have my own relationship with God. So I am a monotheist, right? But I would also say that um, anyone who arrives at a conceptualization of monotheism uh, doesn't necessarily need a religious scripture. Right. To adhere to that belief system. So I look at anyone who believes in God uh, as uh, someone who's a believer that runs totally contradictory to um, the general sentiment of Islam. We all have a unique relationship with God or maybe don't believe in God. But at the end of the day, a proper understanding of religion has to be that we'll only find out when we die. So assuming that we're correct in the same way that we might with politics or uh, or, or another uh, phenomenon or or, or, or social uh, component uh, is just arrogant and absurd. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that I've arrived at that uh, conclusion because it allows me to be non-judgmental. I can hold beliefs and share those beliefs, but I'm certainly not going to beat them down a person's face any longer. And it, it provides for a greater avenue of spirituality inside of myself. And then if I miss following a rule or something, I don't beat myself up over it, right? So like in fundamentalist Islam, there's a lot of punishment, you know, punishment, punishment for missing the rules. I like to think of myself as a Jesus Muslim in the sense that Jesus went to the Pharisees and said, you guys are arrogant. You know the law, you practice the law by rules, but you don't know the substance of the law. I incorporate a lot of uh, of 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 Jesus-like or Christian-like principles into my understanding of spirituality.
1: Why do you call your, Why would you call yourself a Muslim and not a Christian? Then what is
0: well because Muslim? If you think about it, Christ means that you're a follower of Christ. A Jew means that you're from a particular tribe. Islam or being a Muslim comes from a root of a word that means to submit. It's something you do. Right. And um, and so it's something that you experience. And so it is merely meaning one who submits to the awareness that God is real.
1: So my last last question, because I know you have to go in in a minute. Um, So did you have um, a personal impact on the TV show South Park?
0: Yes, we threatened the writers of South Park for portraying the Prophet Muhammad in caricature. We Hmm. threatened them the night before the episode aired. So they went on Entertainment Tonight, a popular show in the United States, and they said that we have a special for our 200th episode. We're going to portray the Prophet Muhammad in caricature. So to precede that, an individual affiliated with my organization published a picture of Theo Van Gogh, who was killed in Amsterdam for portraying, for making a film that was considered by fundamentalists derogatory against Muslims. Um, and they stabbed him on a street while he was riding his bicycle. The individual put a post on Revolution Muslim that went viral that had Theo Van Gogh dead on the street and said that the writers of South Park will probably end up like Theo Van Gogh. Now, that's not illegal in American law, but he posted their addresses where they could be visited. And as a consequence of that, Comedy Central decided not to air the episode. And so mm. it caused worldwide controversy. People started, everybody draw Muhammad Facebook pages, started to draw oh. the pictures of Muhammad derogatorily. It caused indonesia and pakistan to shut down facebook for a day and protest facebook ultimately removed the page the woman that started the page went into hiding because muslims started to threaten her and then my associates Anwar al and samir khan who had moved to join al-qaeda in the arabian peninsula took a template that i developed english language jihadi magazines and they issued a magazine that was basically a fatwa against the south park writers And the woman who started Everybody Draw Muhammad Day that was called Inspire magazine. And it had fatwa that declared her death permissible. And then it had the first article that was an example of English language propaganda with connection to the recipes for building bombs. It was an article called How to Build a Bomb in Mom's Kitchen. It's been downloaded by jihadist far right wing extremists thousands of times because it's a recipe that is very easy to get the uh, ingredients for and it's been used. The Boston Marathon bombers used it, for example. And so as a consequence of that, I knew I had broken the law and I ran to Morocco. And that's where my story of deradicalization starts. Um, But yes, uh, uh, staunchly, uh, I I did not uh, have any opposition to the South Park writers portraying the Prophet Muhammad, but I knew that it would be good for recruitment. So I Uh, ran with it. uh, And Yeah, it was it was a good recruitment tool because anytime these things that happened in Denmark radicalized thousands, you know, and so we used it to our advantage. um, And it was it's clearly a manipulation that like I know Anwar Al-Audaki in person. I know Samir Khan. I know Abdullah. I know all of the charismatic preachers. Hmm. What they would say about caricatures and cartoons behind closed doors, they would they could care. They could care less. But what they would say about an event that happened like it is let's use that to propagandize on our beliefs. And that has become one of the most um, uh, easy arguments to make for general Muslims is like, look, they are insulting your prophets and your religion commands that you defend the prophet. And we're the only ones defending the prophet. The rest of the Muslim community is staying silent. Therefore, we must be on the truth. Come join us. And it's an incredible recruitment tool. Um, ultimately I ran to Morocco because I knew that that was a violation of the first amendment free expression law in the United States. And as a consequence of being on the run, I had to stop talking to those charismatic preachers. And that was probably the beginning of an ability to get my, myself back, uh, Mm -hmm. which started a process that is ongoing until today. And, um, that was a, a decade ago. So I spent a decade in the movement. I'm approaching a decade out. Um, and, uh, would like to feel that I'm, um, getting to a point where I'm completely healed. But as Uh you, as they say, uh, if you walk 10 years into the woods, it takes 10 years to walk back out of the woods. You know, it's not a quick fix, quick cut. So still healing, still working, still trying to do positive things and make amends for what I once was. Feeling happier. I do feel much better every day. Yeah.
1: How great was that? It's a lot to take in, and I found I understood Jesse much better the second time around while I was in the edit, listening back to some of his ideas, which were at times quite complex and seemingly impenetrable. Uh, They started to make even more sense when I listened to them again. I certainly feel more knowledgeable for the time I spent with him, and I hope you do too. I hate when we separate the world into good and bad, and I think we can only stop what we see as bad stuff from happening if we try to understand those people. So I love how Jesse is able to get into their minds and bring them down and and first, before anything else, prevent them from getting involved in violence before moving them further away from other extremist ideas and actions. I'm delighted he's managed to turn his life around and continue to recover from his trauma. Remember to follow him on at lightuponlight or at underscore jesse morton. Follow me, I need more followers, on andrewgold underscore OK on both Twitter or Instagram. For my patrons, there is another 10 minutes of bonus content in which Jesse expands on some of his beliefs. If you're on the patron version, that will be played now. You can sign up on patreon.com slash andrewgold. Remember, there's a birthday special of 10% off until the end of the month. You'll also be getting the podcast episodes several days earlier and without ads. Thank you so much to my newest patrons last week, Sam Jefferis, Tiffany Landale, Todd Rennerbohm, and Rational Alien. You're making the show happen, so thank you so much for your support. And remember, everybody, come join me in my chat room, The link is in the show notes. It's Thursday at 8pm GMT. It's free. You don't have to sign up. It's just a bit of fun where usually there are about 10 of us who just get together and chat about the episodes and whatever else is going on in our weeks. Uh, Thanks also to my latest reviewers. Uh, Remember to please write them if you're on Apple. I think you can write comments on CastBox too and maybe Stitcher. I'm not sure. This week there was just one new review and it came from AG-W94. That's my initials, A.G., but I don't know what it stands for in your case. Uh, But A.G.W. 94 wrote, Balanced and interesting. Andrew is a genuinely objective interviewer who manages to draw out his guests' thoughts and opinions in a professional and skilled manner. Basically, this is dead good stuff. Dead good. I like that. And I wonder if they had just listened, perhaps, to the Sue Black episode where she talks all about death Or it might just be that dead good is quite an English way of saying good. I might be reading too much into that. But anyway, next week I'll be putting out part two with the wonderful Sadia Hamid, whose first part came out a couple of weeks ago. People have been really enjoying that. It's been shared all over Twitter. And I think a lot of people hopefully are looking forward to hearing the second part. I'm going to get about editing it now. And I'll see you then.